Well, good day, everyone. It's Wesley here from Business Blessings, and we're up to episode six of our Sacrificial Succession podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Paul, it's great to have you back again today. Thanks, Wes. <laughs> Paul, we're discussing a very interesting topic today, and that's hanging on, and the fact that a lot of leaders, uh, they either leave too soon or leave it too late. Uh <laughs> it's certainly maybe too late it's not right but they, they hang around for oh absolutely you can but... leave that there are people who leave it too late um so late that by the time they consider it really the the horse has bolted everything has happened that shouldn't have happened and so it's actually too late there's nothing that can be done really to um uh, rectify the situation unfortunately which so sometimes that actually results in the organization simply having to close down and i've seen that happen with a couple of yeah people. yeah close down or you know it becomes neutered you know it's yeah. ineffective because essentially they have to start again which can take a very radical which needs that there needs to be a radical shift in the organization for, for that. Yeah, to bring yeah absolutely. Paul, the scripture you've got for today is Matthew 20, 25, 26, which you says, you know that the rulers lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. So we, we bring in this idea that, that the leaders need to serve our successes. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting if you look at, um, you know, that passage um, in detail as I've done is that it's the way that it's the way that the world uses its authority. I, I don't think Jesus is saying is that as leaders, we shouldn't have authority. It's the way that we use authority. Um, and we've all seen leaders who are like this. And I don't just mean worldly leaders no <laughs> um, that's true you know where they lord it over those who are under them or it's interesting how jesus uses another example is they exercise authority so it's interesting when you think about that because there's two there tend to be two ways that this can be wrongly applied the first is through power lording it over everybody you know i'm too important to be replaced or to fail um or the other one is by exercising authority you are using the um management structures techniques systems etc etc to control people and the situation so you may not be lording it over them um, but you are using every tactic and technique that you have in your playbook um, to be able to maintain and sustain your leadership. See, some people do that very consciously. Do you think others are doing it unconsciously? Because Yeah, and the system. You know, we, we are working in systems that have been designed to maintain exactly what we're talking about. So, you know, a manager is not encouraged to be mentoring someone who could replace them. 
um, leaders are not encouraged to do that. And so as a result, anyone who tries to break out of that mould tends to come under scrutiny at the very least and perhaps even criticism. And also none of the ways that we remunerate people as in reward them either financially or in terms of honouring them tends to focus around this uh, idea of being, um, you know, being sacrificial in terms of thinking about and actually preparing someone. So you can exercise authority actually in, with a servantship heart, but you're still within a system and mold that is exercising the sort of authority that Jesus is talking about. Getting that right is so difficult, isn't it? Because it's, it's, you're trying to, you're, so sometimes you as a leader have actually created that system that keeps you in there and things are all built up around you to support you and to carry you. Maybe it's someone who has a great personality, um, you know, and. Yeah. Or you might be working in a system. Let's face it. Um, if we're talking about churches and, and uh, some corporations and organizations, we're talking about a, a mold that has been part of that organization or structure in some cases for decades or even centuries. It's interesting if you look at some of the literature that talks about the rise of multinational corporations. And if you look at say the British East India Company as one of the first multinational corporations, they actually, some of the literature has charted the rise of those organizations as being modeled on the Anglican and Catholic churches in terms of their corporate structure and the way that they operate with a CEO, you know, at the top. Um, and so, the, some of these models and molds, they're centuries old. <laughs> Actually, it's a scary thought, isn't it? Because like the, the Dutch East India Company, what was the 1700s, um, yeah. 1800s, when it really got to the fore. But the church had been around for hundreds of years prior to that. So so where else did would have they looked for? Uh, examples to go through but it's pretty scary to think that that's they were also masters in terms of the dutch um east indies company they were masters at so they studied sociological patterns and structures within the countries that they colonized and they worked out how they could uh leverage those social structures in such a way that they could control those countries especially in an economic sense with a very small number of executives and ceos at the top uh, which again is the multinational uh, model uh, it's incredible to think about that uh, okay so so let's get down to some of the research that's there harvard business review says that only 15 percent of companies have enough successes to fill key positions that that's actually very scary when you think about it, when you think about the number of organizations that are out there and only 15%. Um, and then 
then you think about the change that's happening today with millennials in jobs that the most of the money stay in jobs for three years, if that. And they're constantly, it would be, actually, I even think looking around, probably all ages now are changing jobs more often than historically would have happened, which means it's very hard then to, to put in place a succession model. It's very hard, and especially if the the potential successors, you know, the people in, in that pool of potentials, if you like, um, look to the former generation and can see through their actions yeah. that there's essentially no chance that they are going to get that opportunity. I was actually just talking with my mentor this morning about that. Where, where he was saying um, with some of the, he mentors people around the world uh, and some countries where the uh, life expectancy is a little shorter than ours, a little less than ours, he said, you know, people are essentially dying or becoming um, so sick or incapacitated in their roles as leaders and yet they're still hanging on until then knowing from the statistics of their country that they've reached their life expectancy and yet they're still hanging on right to the end. Um, That's not conducive to that pool of people who are watching and thinking, I don't think I'm going to get an opportunity here, so I'll just go somewhere else. Which is not unusual for that to happen. Yeah. For some reason, I'm thinking about the Queen. Like she's been in there for how many years? And it's amazing that Charles hasn't gone somewhere else. <laughs> but, you know, but yeah, it's well, they're a dynasty, and so yeah. dynasties are unique in the sense that you are limited to your um, biological successors in most yes. cases, um, and that's why you know because you've read my book. Uh, it's not a recommended model. Um, however, that being said, in some cases, like the monarchy and in some family businesses, that's the reality. You, it's exactly what you're talking about. The reality is you're a family business or family dynasty and you must pick someone from your lineage. That is not the advisable way to go except in those unique circumstances where it is a family dynasty. Uh, So in the case of Charles, yes, he just has to be patient. Um, And I think at the end of the day, she's not a bad leader. No, that's right. Exactly. She's done done pretty good and showing herself very true, even at 94. Okay. So the question is for those that are listening, where do you fit into this? Uh, Are you hanging on or you handing over? And it is, um, you know, some people feel, well, the Queen feels this way, that, that it was her God-given thing and she made a, a, a pledge or, um, or however you say it, to that, that she would serve in that capacity to her dying days. But others who uh, feel that they are called to a situation feel like that that call is there for it, it's not revoked. Um, keep going. So that, that's an interesting tussle in, in Christian circles. It is. And I think the important thing that certainly we've learned 
um, through applying sacrificial succession. And I give you a few examples um, in the book uh, that, that I talked about guys like Pete and Mike, um, where that question of hanging on and handing over, they're not, um, they're not mutually exclusive. In other words, um, by handing over, it doesn't mean that you're giving everything up. It doesn't mean you're just dropping everything and leaving. These guys chose not to hang on. They chose to hand over so that they had enough time to have continuing input into the lives of their successors. And it's, it's interesting in, say, the case of Mike, um, that he spent at least, I think, from memory about four or five years, actually probably more, maybe close to a decade, actually, of preparing uh, his successor. Um, but he stayed on. In other words, he's handed over the leadership, but in a, in a corporate sense, because it's a multinational corporation, he's remained as the executive director of the company, um, and so he still has a lot of legal say in the way the company is run, but he also has continued to act as a mentor for the current director of the company. And the other example I mentioned there is Pete. Um, he spent about seven years in, in preparing, handed over. Uh, he's not gone. <laughs> he hasn't just left. Uh, he continues to be the founding pastor. He continues to provide leadership and input, um, but he's leading from behind. He's no longer uh, the, the one who's leading from the front. He's handed that over. But it doesn't mean that he's just, you know, in handing over that there is no more uh, stake in what, is happening, and it's it's interesting that uh, there's research by a guy. I think at Stanford, his name's Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, and he's actually found that uh, corporations and organisations that um, prov provide a long-term opportunity for founders and those who previous you know previous CEOs to remain on the board of directors or trustees providing input are actually uh, some of the healthiest uh, corporations and, and, and have good governance. And, and an example he gives is with Bill Gates, notwithstanding some of um, the poor choices that Bill Gates has made in his personal life, um, he has maintained a long-term uh, role in providing input and advice to, to Microsoft at the time that that particular research was done. Uh, and I think that um, that's, that's what he's talking about. It's not saying that these people have no more role whatsoever in the organisation. It means that the role they play is fundamentally different to what it was when they were hanging on. So, Paul, this is about creating a very different kind of corporate structure, really, isn't it? Because like traditionally, and even we see CEOs, they're appointed for a five-year term. 
for example, or a 10-year term or whatever it is. And then they're expected they'll come in, they'll fix up whatever needs to be fixed up. They'll, you know, they're remunerated and you keep talking about, actually, we need to remunerate for succession, but they're remunerated based on certain goals and they're very good at reaching those goals so that they benefit financially. But often it's them that's benefiting financially and maybe not the company as a whole because they learn to work the system in doing that. So this is a very different way of thinking about it and you're having a different structure in place. It's a very different way. And, and, you know, we had the privilege of talking with junior um, in our last podcast and it was interesting, you know, just how he shared there he's playing, even though he's halfway across the world or more, he's still playing an ongoing role in giving input and guidance to his successor actually a number of successes because they're, they're running different uh, parts of that large organization. One guy runs the church, another one runs the school, uh, another one runs the radio station. So that's an example of, of, of ongoing input from someone who has handed over sacrificially, um, but it doesn't mean that they've let go. No, no. Handing over doesn't mean dropping the ball or letting go. Yes. Then you hurt yourself when you do that <laughs> and others. I, I know I had a, um, a conversation with our family just recently about someone who was in a, a very significant ministry role and had worked in that organization for 40 plus years. He stepped down from, he got to the head, he stepped down and felt like he'd been dropped. And so actually was talking to somebody else in that organization, I mentioned that to him. He said, it's very common because they get, there is no role for them after they've reached the top role. They've fulfilled it for the term that's set for it. But what do they do after that? There's no plans for that. That's right. Or they give themselves no opportunity for a sustenance role because they've hung on for so long that by the time it's usually decided by others. Yes. Um, or they leave. Um, people don't want them to be playing a role or there's simply no time. They haven't got any more time to yeah. play that role. Yeah. You, you tend to find within any role that it has a life cycle Um and we don't always know what that life cycle is, but we know what statistics tells us that in most cases, people will stay in a senior leadership role for about 10 years. That's what the statistics say for both nonprofit and for-profit. So you get an idea that that's kind of the life cycle. Yes. Uh, it may be more, it may be less, but what we always talk about with our teams is instead of seeing that that life cycle as sort of you're going to a peak and you're in the, on the top of that peak and then it essentially drops off and you're finished. We want to look at it much more as you are starting by serving, you then sacrifice your leadership and then you give enough time to help to sustain those that you've handed over to. And if you think about it, it in that sort of life cycle, it's a different way of looking at essentially the same period of time. You're just doing things differently during that period of time. 
So, Paul, one of the things that, as we look at this, it's relationship is so key because you're serving those, uh, your potential successes for, say, three, four, five, maybe seven, ten years. I don't know how long, whatever that's going to be. You're inputting into them. You're building a very good relationship with them. You're, um, you're watching them grow. And it's like a, a dad or a mum who's watching their kids grow. And then, then you feel that there's this time that comes, well, you know what? It's actually time to transition out. But you're not being removed from the situation. You're staying on. And actually, your successor wants you to stay on because you have a really good relationship with them. They value what, what the input you put into them. And so they want the best for you as well to go. So it really that's does right. work very well. Yeah, that's right. And and I think, you know, one of the best examples, and, and as you know, I use the example of marriage a lot. But um, on the weekend, I, we, we had the privilege as a group of men to um, sit down with a young guy who's going to get married shortly. And, you know, one of the topics of conversation was the difference in relationship that he will have uh, with his parents. And obviously she'll have with her parents now that they're married. But one thing you don't want is for the parents to have no (laughs) relationship anymore with the newly married children. But you want the relationship to be fundamentally different than it was before because you want them to help to sustain the new relationship, but they are not the masters. They're not the leaders of the new relationship. It's the new couple who are, and especially for the young man, he's the leader in his family now. Um, And that analogy is quite a good analogy for what we're talking about as well, is that, you know, when we think about um, that relationship, relationship because it's so important again I was just talking with my mentor about that this morning in the sense that we can learn almost everything we need to know from books Um, but none of what we're talking about really with sacrificial succession has anything to do fundamentally with knowledge yes of course people need to to have the business now and need to have certain skills, et cetera, et cetera. But all of what we're talking about really has to do with relationship. That's how you can make a judgment about character. That's how you can make a judgment about whether or not someone will stay the course. It's all about relationship. And if you're going to just break that relationship at the point of handing over, uh, that's no relationship at all. No. No. And so this is... This is one of the things that we see. I think even the Gallup strength uh, research shows that people are much more happier at work if they have close friends at work, if they've got relationship at work. So I mean, we even see that lower level, but we rarely see that at the higher level, uh, as, yeah, which we need to see. So which one of the things with this that I think is key is the blessing of the trustees or the board about this because I mean even them some of them you know like a lot of boards are elected for a certain time frame maybe a year two years three years but they don't look at succession either at the board level or the bigger picture of succession 
overall in their organization uh, as well, because they wouldn't have that paradigm either. Yeah. Um, and as you know, you've, you've looked at my book and read through it. Uh, that, that's a really critical uh, area that unfortunately, because of the models that we talked about and the molds that we talked about, this is not something that's often done. Um, and yet it's so important that there are trustees or directors or executives or elders, whatever the structure is, that there are people in authority who are there to help us through the, the, the process. You know, it's interesting that Jesus said when he, some of his decisions or some of the things that he said were questions, he said, everything that I say, my father, I'm saying what my father told me to say. We need to have that authority to say, I'm doing this because this is what I discussed with my leadership and they are behind me on this. That's why in the case of East Timor, which we talked about with Junior and I mentioned in the book, I was able to go to the team in country who were not favorably disposed in any way, shape or form to my plans for transition at the beginning in terms of this sacrificial model. Um, and I was able to go to them and say, well, I know how you feel about this, but I am under the authority of my leadership and they are backing me on this. And so um, you need to accept that this is the way that we're going to do things. And I was constantly in a feedback loop to the leadership, telling them and informing them and keeping them um, you know, as part of my oversight group um, to, so that they understood this is what I'm doing next and this is what, how we're making these plans so that it was very clear and transparent. So, Paul, I'm, I'm the leader of an organisation. I've listened to this podcast and think I need to start thinking about transition. I look at my staff. I look at my volunteers whatever the circumstances is for their organization. And I just don't see anyone. What do I do? <laughs> well, and uh, you, you're not the first person that said this to me. Um, what I would say is because I have been involved in applying this principle and model of sacrificial succession in places where I can guarantee <laughs> that the pool of potentials that we had to draw from and the situations in which they lived and worked are far tougher than um, I think I could confidently say than <laughs> that you have ever possibly faced. Um, I have to disagree with you and say that um, like Junior said, this is a biblical principle. And so we should confidently in faith be willing to take that step of faith and say, if you want me to do this, Lord, 
you will provide the people and they will be there um, and I will be able to see that over time. Help me to see that. Make a list. Um, there's practical things where you actually make a list and start to look at people. Um, you, you won't get anywhere if you don't make a start on considering people in light of their potential to be able to be a leader. If you can't see that, you can't see the potential in someone, you'll never, you'll never get started with it because that's the attitude, you know, in, in East Timor and many other places. Well, they're not ready. Uh, well, they're from a different religious background. Uh, they're from a different ethnic background. We don't talk about these things because that's not politically correct. Um, but I tell you, we still think about them. Yeah. We yeah. may not talk about them, but we think about them. Yes. We think about all these things. We think about gender. We think about age. We think about ethnicity. We think about education. We think about background. These are all the things we think about. Perhaps we no longer talk about them as much because they're not politically correct. But these are all realities that we have to think about when we're thinking about potential leaders. Um, and we've just got to have those thoughts and discussions, honestly, because, you know, these are the challenges that we faced in the projects that we work in. All of those things come about, especially ethnic differences. There are very strong ethnic differences because we do pioneering work in places where usually they're people from a different ethnicity or religious background. So we've got even that extra element to work with uh, as well. And yet we've seen without exception uh, when this has been faithfully applied, we've seen great success. So I have a look at my staff. I have a look at my volunteers or whoever you're over and you actually start to put everyone's name down and work through them one by one. Absolutely. And, and be positive about the discrimination. You notice that I mentioned that in the book, mm. positive discrimination. That is, we need to be looking at those who are probably unlikely. In our case, because we're working in, in multinational contexts and projects, it's looking at that next generation of people who might be from the different ethnic background to the current majority ethnic people. It might be looking at someone, um, you know, in a male uh, or patriarchal context, and it might be a lady that we're considering for a role, giving them an opportunity because they're the ones that are best um, qualified in this case, have the best character. We've had situations like that. Um, people who, like in the case of East Timor, are extremely traumatised, people from different religious backgrounds, all things that tend to disqualify them, they never be, may be stated, but tend to disqualify them, we say, do the opposite, positively discriminate, just like Paul the Apostle did you know, with Gentiles like Timothy and Titus who would have been viewed by the majority Jewish leadership at the time as possibly being um, 
not the most appropriate successors for Paul, but he recognised that through positive discrimination, because his target <laughs> was Gentiles, they were the best. They were the most appropriate, despite being young, despite being inexperienced. Um, he was able to make that judgment, and ultimately the leadership backed him. So, Paul, just summarising that up, we are all blinded to certain things. We all have biases, whether that we're aware of them or not, which is really what you're talking about here. So I came across this saying the other day in a book I was reading, it says, God, show me what I need to see. And, and, and it's really hit me that there are some things that, that I don't see because I'm blinded to them. And we all have our blind spots. Johari window talks about that. Uh, So really what you're saying is get rid of them, sit down, work with them, work. and, And, and even just ask God to show you things that you actually are not seeing in other people. Absolutely. You know, when, when before Jesus went out and chose his disciples, it, it says he went up to the mountain to pray um, because he needed that guidance that, to be able to see what others and perhaps even he himself without prayer didn't see. Yeah. Because um, he was a man as well, um, choosing successors, the most unlikely, you'd have to say, bunch of successors. And <laughs> yes. Yet, you know. <laughs> the major, many management consultants have said that I wouldn't have chosen those 12. But, but, and, but see, this is, this is the difference coming from a faith perspective is that God knows and sees we tend to look on the outside, but God looks on the heart and he sees their potential. He sees what they can become and he calls them into that destiny. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Paul, we need to wrap it up there for today, but I think we've got a huge takeaway today. Who are the people that are already under you in your organization uh, and start to look at each one of them one by one? And, yeah, yeah. Practically, I was just talking again with my mentor. He's 84. Um, and he mentors, I think, around about 35, 36 uh, young men in relation to him, actually, and, and women too. Um, but what he was saying is make a list. It's something really practical. Make a list. Make a list of people. Pray about them. Think about them. It's the place to start and then to go from there. So there's a very practical thing to finish on today. Well, thank you, Paul. It's been great. I'm loving these conversations. And I encourage you guys, if you haven't actually downloaded the first will be last book, uh, it's on our website, sacrificialsuccession.com. Check it out, download it, and share it with others. And, Paul, I look forward to talking again next week. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.